Our passage today comes from Revelation chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who holds to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which will strike, which, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Please be seated. 
All right, good morning. Um, yeah, so just a couple of things as we start. First of all, uh, yeah, we do acknowledge that we come, uh, many of us, uh, a little heavy hearts as the sting of death has again taken another uh, beloved member of Grace Church uh, home to be with Christ. Uh, many of you didn't even really know uh, Melissa Jordan. Oh, thank you. Maybe you didn't know Melissa Jordan because she had such a long, drawn-out uh, battle with cancer that kept her from us for quite a long time. Um, but yet we're very thankful for the way that uh, God used her and her witness and testimony to grow and to build Grace Church over the years. Uh, and so we, we don't mourn for Melissa. We rejoice that her battle with cancer is ended and she is resting in the joy and the company of her Savior face-to-face, waiting with all the saints for that great day when we're reunited in the resurrection and new creation. Uh, but certainly our hearts are also heavy uh, for Mark and the family, and so just encourage you to continue to be praying uh, for them during this time and for the whole church, right, that uh, mourns uh, together uh, for that loss. So please continue in prayer. Uh, the other thing I'll just mention here before we start this morning, I just want to give a word of thanks to all those who are Helped out, we're a part of our Christmas drive-through over the weekend. Everybody who spent hours and hours uh, painting and cutting out some of our props, or the teens who put lights up in the trees, or some of the kids and the adults who were doing luminaries all throughout the parking way lot in the church, uh, or anybody who just came, or anybody who was just at home praying for it and considering it, we're really just uh, very thankful uh, for that ministry and uh, just that opportunity to be a blessing to our our community. Which, by the way. So here's the thing, right? Uh, I'll just say to you that you join company as we do that together with um, the history of the church, at least for the past 100, 150 years or so, which has really been all about um, bringing light and beauty and warmth into the darkness and coldness and oftentimes dreariness of mid-November, right? These longest nights of the year. Right? The church has been major proponents of flooding the world with, at times, tacky Christmas lights. But to, you know, to bring in some light and warmth and beauty into that. And part of the reason we do that, right, is because we believe symbolically that an even greater light, right, has broken into a darkened and weary world. Right? We believe that the first coming, the advent of Christ, that which we celebrate on Christmas Day, was light and life breaking into a world that was starving for it. And, as we've been talking this morning already, we light those lights as a light of hope and anticipation, right? That darkness is not going to win. It will not consume the world. But because, with the coming of Christ, that whole redemption and restoration project is underway, we can look forward to this great day of full and final salvation yet to come. And the thing is, it's not just the church that does this, right? You see everybody doing this. Everybody likes the idea of light penetrating these dark, cold nights of December. Maybe had a couple hundred cars and families come drive through just to see it. Or our family, uh, with my brothers and some other kids and my parents, we went down to the city on Friday night to see some of the Christmas lights and displays and some of the little shows and some of the buildings and things like that. And it was mobbed. <laughs> right? It was a zoo down in the city. So trying to, you know, hurt everybody through all this and stay together was a little bit tricky, right? Because, one, it was a nice night. It wasn't too cold out. Uh, but two, everybody likes that. They like, you know, these 
pictures of light and beauty breaking into the long winter that we're just about to settle into. And I think, if you ask me, there's some symbolism there even on a cultural level too. Right? That everybody knows that at times there are seasons in life that are heavy, that are burdensome, that seem filled a little bit more with darkness. And there is that longing for light to bring hope. There's longing for life to bring joy. There's longing for life to bring renewed meaning and satisfaction. Right? And everybody in the broad, you know, everybody has aims their life towards something that they hope will provide that and bring that to them. All to say that I think one thing that we have in our passage this morning is we get a really neat and yet a really clear picture of what this salvation life is that followers of Jesus are aiming at, are looking forward to, are tasting already, but are longing for all the more. And I think our passage this morning helps us visualize the idea of that salvation through two images, an image of a meal and an image of a war. Right? And so it's these two images that I'm going to kind of zero in on as symbolic representations, I think, of this salvation life that is given to us in Christ now, but even more so when he comes again. Okay? And before we dive in, my typical disclaimers, especially to anybody who would happen to be worshiping with us for the first time or checking us out online. Again, it's great to have you here. We hope that you're blessed, but I will acknowledge from the front that you're jumping into one of the more difficult books of the Bible to just jump into. It's one of the more difficult books of the Bible, period, the book of Revelation, because it's just a weird genre that we're not used to. It's apocalyptic literature. The book of, uh, well, apocalyptic means to reveal, right? So it's revealing deeper spiritual truths and realities about life through vivid images, right? Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's blank. Uh, you know, it's like when you walk into an art museum, and abstract images, right, that you kind of look at and you scratch your head. What's going on there, right? Revelation gives us these almost abstract images to reveal... Or I found out that the youth group is playing a fun game of saying how many times I say pull back the curtain on life, right? Well, here you go. It pulls back the curtain so you can see behind. See, now we got Bill, the Bathdoor family counting how many times I say cheesesteaks. we got the youth group counting how many times I... Probably some of you are counting how many times I do this or this. So we should keep a spreadsheet running, you know, somewhere in the hidden... Anyway, on we go. But, yeah, right, that's what Revelation does. It pulls back the curtain. Was that three? And it shows us some of the deeper, hidden spiritual realities of life that need to be revealed. And it doesn't just do that, again, through just telling us, boom, this is what it is. It shows us through these graphic, vivid images that are meant to capture our imagination and our heart's attention as we consider what life is going to be for God's people as we wait between the first advent and the second advent. We're wrapping up the book. We're coming to the end, chapter 19. we got a few more to go. And so we're really moving these visions towards that future day and the future glory that is yet to come. And as we jump into chapter 19 here, we come into a scene of wild celebration. All right, everybody's shouting hallelujah. Familiar term, but interestingly enough, this is the first time it actually shows up in the New Testament, that word hallelujah. We've reached a height of celebration. So we're going to break out this old term, hallelujah, here this morning. 
Right? And we're celebrating because of what happened in the last chapter. Babylon has fallen. Right? This Babylon, which we got introduced to a couple chapters ago, this Babylon, this mighty city decked out in luxury and glamour, wealth and riches. It was actually a pretty impressive city. But then you, you, you peer a little bit closer or more behind the scenes and you realize that some of that wealth and that luxury was built off of injustice, corruption, idolatry. It was built on the back of the seven-headed beast, right? That's the other picture of Babylon, this prostitute riding on the back of a seven-headed beast which represents corrupt earthly power and empires and kingdoms. In this city was the blood of the saints. In this city was the blood of all those who'd been slain on the earth, right? And so you can understand why there is this cries and these shouts of celebration, hallelujah, because Babylon has fallen, Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and just and he has judged that great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever, which is a sign that she's never going to be rebuilt. We're done. No more rebuilding empire. No more rebuilding these corrupt kingdoms. No more rebuilding Babylon like we've seen throughout history. All that's left is this eternal flicker of smoke that's just rising. Okay, and then the image, it moves towards out of the rubble of Babylon comes this radiant bride. (laughs) In a way, sort of walking down the aisle, but it's coming through the stepping over the rubble and the stones of Babylon as Babylon, right? The counter bride, the whore, the prostitute has been leveled. Right? Out of the ashes and of it comes the true, pure, radiant bride. This is borrowing biblical imagery. It is often referred to God's people as his bride. Right? Because it's painting that picture of a covenant relationship wherein these two people, they make, they make promises to one another and they pledge themselves to one another through thick and thin, through good times, through struggling. Uh, this bride, it's the church of Christ that's been represented by a bunch of things throughout the book of Revelation. Right? We've had a lot of different symbols for the church. We've had lampstands in the very beginning right, to symbolize the church is meant to be light in a darkened world, lights that are, you know, uh, tended and whatever, cared for by the, the Son of God himself who walks in between the lampstands. Uh, this bride is the 144,000. The 12 times 12,000 who are marked with the seal of God and who are kept safe and secure amidst all opposition and persecution. This bride is the two witnesses who were trampled and mocked and left for dead in the city streets. But then the power of God comes upon her and breathes new life into her. And she rises and the people see and the people from every tongue, tribe and nation, when they see it and they see the power of God at work in her life, they turn and they repent and they give God glory in chapter 11. Yeah, amen, right? This bride is the woman from and her offspring from chapter 12 who were pursued by the dragon into the wilderness where she was cared for and she was fed and she was nourished by God for times, time, and half a time. Right? And now we come to like the ultimate symbol, 
right? The bride. Or next week when we'll see it in the, well, in two weeks when we'll see the city, right? She's not a bride. She's another city, just like Babylon was a whore in the city as well too, right? Here's the true, the true bride that's coming through. Right? And as she comes through, right, all the voices start shouting hallelujah. Again, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here we go. Blessed are all those who are invited to this meal. Uh, As a father of three daughters, uh, teenage daughters, Starting to think, okay, calculating the cost for college costs, and then thinking, okay, and then after college, we got these weddings. I'm really hoping that all of this deconstruction of gender norms and gender roles that are going on in our society, that somebody will eventually kick out that old antiquated rule of the bride and their family having to pay for the wedding. In my view, if you are privileged enough to marry one of my daughters, consider yourself lucky, and you should be footing the bill in celebration for getting to marry one of my daughters. But I digress. Uh, as a pastor, you, am I right, Rich? Come on. <laughs> Say, thanks. <laughs> right, but as a pastor, you get the wonderful privilege of going to weddings and to reception dinners and the celebration. And sometimes I look around and think, man, this must have cost a pretty penny. Oh, I start sweating. But then you remember, almost like I get it, right? Because this is, this is something of, Right, the height of sacred beauty and joy, right, that we can get to, right? These two people coming together in a commitment of love to pledge themselves to be a stronger unit together and to enjoy life and joy and meaning and hardship and whatever in covenant relationship with one another. And it's no coincidence, I think that's part of the reason why the biblical writers have often pointed to human marriage as the best we have to symbolize or to show this great covenant relationship that exists between God and his people, right? And so as the final coming together of God and his people and the final removal of all obstacles and all false lovers that tempted her heart to lead her astray, right? As she comes and there's finally this coming together of bride and groom, this great celebration. We're going to have a great feast together, an eternal feast which is a symbol not just of celebration, but I would argue a symbol of the coming to full fruition of everything the Bible was aiming for, this communion together with our Creator. Uh, I find myself right now uh, in a season where I am enjoying our, our family dinners just a little bit more, maybe, I think, than usual. And part of that reason, I think, is because we're just in a season of life where everybody's got something going on, right? Got teenage daughters are involved in things at school or they have social lives now or one has a license and can just go wherever. So that dinner time where we finally all come together and we just sit down, seems rushed and ragged at times with everybody else there, right? But just for that half hour, whatever it is where we come together, uh, there's something sweet about it because we're not just stuffing our faces, but in our in our weak attempts at times, we, we are enjoying communion and relationship together, right? We're talking about the day, we're sharing life, we're sharing from the common meal, we're being fed, we're being nourished, we're being strengthened. 
as we do relationship together around the table. That's why we don't eat our meals in front of the TV, unless it's the Eagles game, maybe. Or why we don't, um, you know, we try not to allow phones at the dinner table. I'm probably the biggest culprit. If my phone rings or dings, I'm... But we try not to, because that's the point. We're not just here to eat or to just to satisfy heaven, but the part of the table and the meal is we do this together in relationship, in company, and communion. Right? And so that's why this is a powerful symbol of what we have to look forward to. When we have to look forward to is this final, consummate coming together of bride and bridegroom, coming together of God and his people in rich communion, where we are being nourished, fed, encouraged, as we are sharing life, as we are fellowshipping, as we are living in relationship and in communion with our Creator. Which is something we talk about here all the time. If you've been part of Grace Church for a little while, uh, hopefully you hear me talking about all the time, that what it means to be human is not that just that we are machines of chemicals and molecules that react and respond to little stimuli and circumstances all around us, right? But biblically speaking, we are spiritual beings. We were created, men and women, in the image of God. We have the breath of God breathed into us. The life of God breathed into us, according to Genesis 1, right? And so life that is full, life that is abundant, life that is rich and flourishing, even no matter the circumstances, is life that is lived near to our life giver, the one who gave us life, the one whose breath sustains our life, right? Rich, full, abundant life is lived in nearness, in relationship, in covenant, in communion, with our Creator. Right? It's the story of the whole, it's the whole biblical storyline. We were created for this intimate fellowship. We went running in the opposite direction. And pretty much the story is God constantly pursuing His people so that He can be near to them and reestablish them in this covenant relationship. That's why Jesus, right, before He goes to the cross to give His life sacrificially in love for His people, gathers His disciples one last time to give him one last great theology lesson. And he doesn't just preach a sermon to them, though there's part of that. But more than that, he washes their feet and he gives them a meal. And so this is what it means now, what I'm about to do. This is what it means now to live with me, is that you consume me. You have to abide in me if you want to bear any good fruit. That's why the church, since day one, centuries and centuries and centuries, has regularly... You ask me, maybe you should do it a little bit more regularly. We won't go there. Regularly needs to come back to the table and partake of the bread and the cup, the meal. And remember, not just the Christ who gave his body and his blood for us, and not just the eternal feast that's yet to come, but to remember that this is what life is in the in-between, living in communion with our Creator, our life giver, the one who gave his life to die for us. It's living in that covenant fellowship and feeding off of him for our growth in grace. Okay, so that's, that's the image number one, this meal, which everybody is both, this is a symbolic picture of celebration, but also the symbolic picture of our life with Christ. The second image uh, is this image of war. Okay, we transition from the bride and the bridegroom and the wedding feast, and now we move to this battle scene. Christ is coming on his war steed, 
the beast from the sea and the beast from the land are gathered for war again. We've been introduced to these shady characters, the second half of the book, right? The dragon, beast one and beast two, and Babylon, who rides on beast one, beast from the abyss. And then what we're doing in these last couple chapters is we're just going in reverse now, seeing the judgment on all four of those shady characters, right? So we saw Babylon fall last week. This week we're seeing the fall of the beast from the abyss and the beast from the land. The beast from the abyss, the seven-head monster, it represents corrupt earthly power, kings, kingdoms, empires throughout history. And then the other beast, who's like the sweet-talking false prophet, who convinces you and me and everybody else to give their worship to beast number one. Judgment is coming on these two beasts. And so they gather. They get all the kings of the earth. They get all their armies, everybody that they've stamped with their mark of the beast or whatever, and they gather in the plains of Megiddo in the valley of Jezreel. Right, This place where throughout history there have been for generations and centuries and centuries just very climactic battles. In the back of the valley you got uh, the Carmel, Carmel mountain range where Elijah fought with Jezebel's priests of Baal. Well, if you look Diagonal across the valley, you've got Mount Tabor where um, Deborah and Barak launched their attack on the Canaanites in the valley. Or if you look down the east at the end of the valley, you've got uh, Mount Geboa down there where King Saul died, fell on his sword because his armies were being routed by the Canaanites. In the valley of Jezreel and that plain of Megiddo, you got where King Josiah fell in his war with Egypt. Right? So, in other words, this is a place that just conjures up these images of battle and warfare. And again, as we've been talking, right, this image now of Christ is maybe not one we're so comfortable with. Right? We love the idea of Jesus sitting around a table, having table fellowship and passing the bread and we all, right? But this image of Jesus coming on his mighty war steed and, you know, calling the Birds of prey, like those turkey vultures that circle around when you're on a long hike and you feel like you're going to fall over dead. And they're just circling up there waiting for you to fall over so they can have their full, right? He's calling the birds of prey because the valley is going to be filled with food in, in just a short amount of time. With the image of blood you know, coming up to the height of the bridle of the horse, right? Uh, these, are, these are difficult images, we, right? We don't like to think of Christ in this way. Okay, and... As I've said a couple times, uh, part of the reason for that uh, might be that you've lived a life of privilege. And I don't mean to use the political term or whatever. I just mean that you have managed to live a life where you've been safely walled off from the real sting of oppression and violence and hatred and evil and corruption. Right? Maybe you've managed, well, we all have, to live in somewhat of the comfy confines of Delaware County here. And we hear on the news, you know, of, of violence and murder and cries of hardship and maybe even oppression from folks up in North Philly. And they go, oh, well, that must be tough. Or we hear of people all around the world, right, who are suffering heavily, mightily under years Decades, sometimes centuries of just political oppression and the poverty and the famine that that brings. And the point is, in those cultures, 
in those communities, in those families, they're not so put off by the image of a Christ who's going to come and fight on their behalf. Right? They long for that. They look forward to that. And even like, look, another way to think about this, and there's probably not, not one of us, right? Maybe you've been able to wall yourself off from the effects of physical evil and violence and corruption. But at the end of the day, we all know that we have, we're not able to successfully wall ourselves off from very painful at times, spiritual conflict or mental conflict or emotional conflict. We're not able to wall ourselves off from the sting of disease or the burden and the shadow and the sting of death. Right? As many of us here this morning come with sadness and mourning on behalf of the Jordans. Our Amy just went to a funeral yesterday. You know, someone who died who was a youth group friend growing up, and right as she's there and she's just seeing the sting of death in the room and looking at these young kids that are going to grow up without their mother, right? She comes home just beat down by the heaviness of the weight of death and the sting of that, right? And so anybody, just put yourself in that mindset where you can feel that. You can feel that mental, spiritual, emotional oppression from the sting and power of death. And can you see how, man, this is a powerful image of Christ who comes in all of his power and all of his glory and fights for you. Uh, a couple quick things about this whole battle scene. Uh, you got to be careful with this. There's a whole bunch of weird and wacky interpretations and applications of this battle. You see, I mean, everything from, well, this is the picture of Christians at long last gathering and getting their AR-15s out of their closet and going to the, you know, the hills, the plains of Megiddo and taking up warfare against the enemies right out there. All right, we're going to join this battle with Christ. That's, that's nonsense and just a little bit weird. If you look at the passage, the heaven's armies, they're not engaged in the battle at all. It's only the king who fights the battle. It's really not even a battle. There's not much any description of the battle at all. It's just the king comes and, and he slays them with the sword. And, and, and don't miss the, the imagery here, right? This sword that is coming out of his mouth, right? So let's be good interpreters of apocalyptic symbolism here. This is not Jesus doing what we tell our kids all the time not to do, go running around with sharp objects in your mouth, right? There's a symbol here, right? And so think about it with me. What is the apocalyptic symbol of a sword coming out of the mouth of Christ? What is ultimately coming out of his mouth? His word, the word of God. Right? It's even there among his titles. He's got the diadems on his head. He's got the flames of fire. He's got the king of kings, lord of lords, emblazoned on his thigh. And then somewhere it's, he's the word of God. Right? So he's fighting this battle. He's slaying his enemies. He's confining the beasts to some eternal place away from his creation with the word. The same word that told the cosmic abyss, the ancient seas, to gather in one place so that the dry land could appear in Genesis 1. Right? The same word that caused trees to sprout up and rivers to flow, the same word that flooded the, the land and the seas with life, teeming life. Right? The same word that made demons in the Galilee region leave behind their hosts and the people that they were oppressing and run back into the sea. Right? The same word that illumines 
the darkened areas of our own heart. Right? It's this same word, this same evil, constraining, new life creating word at the very end that comes and essentially does what Genesis 1 was. It, right? It removes from the good land all traces of evil, all traces of oppression, all traces of idolatry. It removes it so that new creation life can emerge and blossom and flourish, right? That's the picture, right? Just be careful how you <laughs> interpret this final battle scene because I've seen some weird interpretation. The main point is the word of God is coming out in all of its evil, canceling, and life-renewing power. You with me? You see that? Two beasts cast in the lake of fire. Oh, we're out of time, but uh, just careful how you interpret that as well, too. Don't make the common assumption to just say, well, that's clearly hell uh, because that image won't hold up a little bit later on here. We'll circle back to that in, in a few, uh, in two weeks. No, 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 in next week. That'll show up again. We'll, we'll deal with that more next week. Because of time, I'm not going to deal with that here. Other than to say, it is a place far removed from the glories of his new creation. Right? And it's a place that they are sent to, to the fires of judgment, whatever that is, and we'll get there in, in a week, okay? But the beasts, gone, removed. That's the picture. Again, you see why this is salvation? This is good stuff? All forces of evil, all forces of injustice, all forces of oppression and violence and hatred, gone. So that God's people can enjoy new creation and enjoy table fellowship eternally with the king. So there it is. There's the picture, if you ask me, rich symbols of what salvation life is. Uh, and just as we close and we make application, I'll say two things. One, to any of you who might be, uh, again, checking us out or even more appropriately checking out Christ, curious about Jesus, who he is, what it's all about, what it means to follow him. Uh, I would remind you what we talked about a little bit in the beginning, right, that all of us, we aim our lives towards some vision of salvation life. And we entrust ourselves to whatever it is that we think is going to bring hope and joy and meaning and satisfaction in life. And what the book of Revelation would challenge you to consider is that those things don't hold up. Right? And I think history bears that out, right? You look at the history of the 20th century where it seemed like our hope for the salvation of mankind was technological advance and the moral growth of human nature or whatever, which is quickly, has quickly faded out because right, you come to the end of 20th century and all that technology and all that good human goodness brought about one of the more, the most violent, uh, centuries throughout all of human history. Or maybe we, we look to political powers to be what's going to get things straightened out and make things great again and make our lives flourish again or whatever whatever it is. And then that's always played out, right? It seems like every two years or every four years or every six years, this the country shifts its political allegiance. Well, because that political party didn't do it or that political figurehead wasn't the savior we were looking for, like that falls short. Or maybe nowadays it seems like, not to use another, again, um, polarizing term, I don't know what, but now it just seems like our hope is in Maybe this cancel culture, or even better biblical word, be a judgment culture, right? Where, okay, we're going to take it upon ourselves to remove from creation, right? Those who persist in 
I don't know what, meanness or saying bad things or doing harmful things, right? All that. And I get that. I understand. I understand why in many ways part of that is long overdue, right? But ultimately that is already starting to fall short as as now allies are starting to cancel one another. And this whole thing, and maybe I would say even more with that whole, the whole problem with that means of redemption is that there is no there is no means of forgiveness. There is no means of atonement. There actually is no means in that of redemption. One day it's all just going to collapse in on itself. Everybody's going to be canceled and there is no more means for redemption and atonement and forgiveness. Right? So again, Revelation would say, hey, look behind the scenes. Look behind the curtain. All right? See that these plots, schemes, goals of salvation, they fall short. They're often coming either on the back of a beast or through the sweet talking mouth of another beast. And Revelation would have you consider Christ and all of his glory, this Christ who longs, whose joy it is to sit around the table in communion with you. Right, This Christ who, through the ages of biblical history, has gone in hot pursuit of his people, even when they were running as far away from him as possible and cheating on him with all these false lovers and playing the whore, Christ pursues. Or this Christ who's coming from heaven. Didn't you pick it out with a robe that is sprinkled with blood? It's not the blood of his enemies, by the way. The battle hasn't even started yet. Right? That's his own blood that he is eternally wearing, like he wears the scars in his hands that Thomas could touch. Right? The scars and the blood from when in this most wild demonstration of love for sinners and prostitutes. He came and surrendered his life so that he could ransom you, so that he could bring you back into table fellowship with your creator, so that you could enjoy life to the full. Right? Consider this Jesus, who is forever the great lamb, not the beast, but the lamb who offers himself for you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. Or see this Jesus who all throughout the book is constantly offering. You Hopefully you've picked out right all these offers and invitations to repent and to turn and to get in on this life that is being offered. And see this Jesus who loves his people so deeply and who is so committed to his creation, who will come as the judge and the King of all kings, and the Lord of all lords, and will remove from his creation all who persist in the very end of wanting nothing to do with him. To those people at the very end, he will say, Thy will be done. Have what you have longed for your whole life. Right? But see this Jesus who offers such rich, satisfying, joy-filled life. And to the church, those of you who have seen this Christ, have, find him, have found him compelling and have entrusted your life to him, I would just real quickly remind you that this image of table fellowship and warfare is not just the picture of salvation life that is yet to come. It is the picture of salvation life that has begun with the first coming of Christ and will be consummated when he comes back again. Right? But just this reminder that these are good pictures of what it means right now to live out salvation life. Or this is a good picture of what it means right now, as Paul would say, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It means that we live in communion and we live in that, in that battle, in that spiritual conflict, right? We live 
in pursuit of Christ. We remember Christ said, look, abide in me and I in you, because apart from me you can bear no good fruit. So we pursue him. We long to live in relationship. And we remember as Paul said, hey, brothers and sisters, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and principalities. Princes of the power of the air, right? There is this conflict. There is a darkness, right? We would be amiss to just see all the twinkling Christmas lights and not notice the the darkness behind it that makes those lights so bright. Remember, you are caught up in conflict. Remember, there are spiritual enemies that vie for your heart's devotion, your heart's worship. Remember, right? And remember that we are called to resist that, to stay true, to remain the pure bride, so that we might be faithful to him and give faithful representation to him, to the world that needs to see him. And there's a myriad of ways that we go about living in relationship and living out that warfare, but the one I'll just circle back to is the image of the word, the sword from the mouth, this mighty weapon. Right? Come back to the word. Give yourself to the word. Remember the value and the gift of the word. Let the word speak Christ's life and blessing and richness to you regularly. Let it speak word of promise and hope over you as you let it, let it remind you of who Christ is as you pursue him in relationship, right? And as you engage the opposition and you live out this spiritual conflict, let the word challenge and convict you. Let it be that sharp two-edged sword that pierces bone and marrow and reveals where those enemies might have a foothold in your heart. Let that word reveal to you the pathway of grace and salvation. Let that word again reveal to you the promises of God who began the good work in you and will bring it to completion. In other words, as we wait, make sure we're taking advantage of this rich salvation life now, living in communion and living out that battle through the gift of the word and the many other gifts he gives us so that we may enjoy his full life now and through all eternity. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.